Hi, I'm Dr. Jerry Fishkin, and welcome to my show. A couple of months ago, I was taking a continuing ed class, and the title of which was uh, Humor in Psychotherapy, something like that. And while the class was somewhat of a yawn at best, one of the great uh, outcomes of that class was meeting my guest today, Michael Goldner. Michael uh, started talking to me during our breaks and uh, told me about his history as a professional comedian, doing the major comedy clubs, having issues with uh, substance abuse and recovery, and then becoming a licensed uh, marriage and family therapist, LMFT, who now has a full-time clinical practice in Beverly Hills. I was fascinated by Michael's story. So fascinated, in fact, I wanted him on my show. It was like an all or nothing. You're gonna be on my show, Michael. You're gonna be on my show. Because there's so much about humor that is important to us as, as clinicians, psychotherapists, that must be brought into the consulting room. It can't be one-dimensional. It has to be three-dimensional. And humor is one of those vehicles that allows that to happen. So. Without further ado, I'd like to introduce you to my guest today, Mr. Michael Goldner, LMFT, and I'd like to say, budding friend. Michael, glad to have you on our show today, man. Thank you, Jerry. Yes. That's a wonderful introduction. Thank you so much. Yeah. I intend to have a wonderful introduction for a great guy. I appreciate it. Thank you. So, I asked you to, to, to uh, give me some questions and some, you know, insights into your uh, background and history. But before that, I'd like you to tell our viewers who you are, okay. what informed you and all of that, and then we'll, uh, we'll click into uh, the questions, hasn't it? Uh-huh. I, this brings together two subjects that have been very important to me. Uh, humor was very uh, important to me in my earlier part of my life. Um, and I pursued uh, comedy as a uh, um, as a, as a job. And at some point, I had a humorectomy. I lost my <laughs> sense of humor, and I think that was about the time of my kind of my breakdown. I had a, a pretty depressed stage of my life that I sought out therapy and in that process I started to become fascinated with the healing process of the human psyche and if you know I was dealing with drug addiction and I was dealing with depression and uh, as I got more and more fascinated with this process that I was in I started to realize that uh, I was going to go back to school and get a degree in psychology go through an internship and become a licensed marriage and family therapist. So when this seminar came up that uh, you described <laughs> as kind of a yawn, of course, except when I was talking, um, <laughs> you know, it, uh, it just attracted me right away because these two subjects have always been important. How humor is effective in therapy is a huge subject and um, you know, I, I look forward to discussing it with you because I think uh, people will really enjoy um, exploring that. 
So why don't we get into first the humor and your relationship with it before okay. and after becoming a therapist? Because I think that's critically important. Tell them about your experiences. Uh, let my audience know where you've performed, what you've done. Give, you know, I want to uh, right. kind of enrich, uh, the, you know, the, the, the visual of, of you, Michael. Okay. I, I think the original or the early influences are, are interesting because when I was very young, on the Jackie Gleason show, there was a guy named Crazy Guggenheim, and he used to stand by the bar and tell jokes like, hey, uh, you know, uh, why are people, uh, uh, why do they build fences around graveyards? Because people are dying to get in. <laughs> and these, these simple little jokes, but for a little kid, I, and I liked his voice, he had this, yeah, and uh, I think that's the first person I actually did an impression of on stage at a summer camp and I did Crazy Guggenheim. How old were you? I must have been uh, maybe eight years old, oh, okay. maybe something like that. But I'd always kind of, I think in my family, uh, humor was valued, especially by my mother. My mother is uh, uh, Welsh, uh, Irish, and she had six brothers. I had six uncles uh, who were very witty storytellers uh, in the Irish uh, tradition. And uh, I'm also half Jewish. My father is a, uh, the uh, son of immigrants from Romania. Um, and uh, so, in other words, I'm always lending myself money to pay off my liquor bills. <laughs> Aha, boom, boom. Okay, so, um, but seriously, or serially, um, those were my, you know, the early class clown, humor was valued at home. Uh, my brother, older brother, was kind of the academic, and that was valued also, but he had kind of carved out that space. So I found uh, that, that wit and humor, uh, that place to make my mother happy and make her laugh. Um, so I think that was the early influences. And then, of course, Danny Kaye, uh, you know. And then I was around more cerebral comics, Lenny Bruce, Mort Saul. Uh, later on, I, I, I gravitated to, uh, you know, more uh, cerebral type comedy and stuff. And then I, I, I became a comic actor. I, I actually was trained in a style called Commedia dell'arte, which is Italian Renaissance street theater, really. And this was in the 70s, and we did political street theater. And uh, I ended up in a troupe in San Francisco, and we toured. We went all over uh, Europe and everything. So, uh, and these were comedies with kind of a little uh, bit of uh, a message, comedy with a message. Um, but one of the things about Commedia dell'arte, which is a, a source of the humor involved in it, is that the actor playing the character will drop a level to acknowledge that he's a human being as, as an actor. So if somebody's upstaging you and in front of you and the audience is on the other side, you can drop to the actor and kind of move them aside like, hey, you're, you're, you're taking my, my shot here. So, and that can be a great source of humor because everybody knows there is a human being underneath that character. Similarly in therapy, uh, the therapist is, you know, whatever role the person is kind of projecting onto the therapist as, as being, uh, it can be dropped, and all of a sudden, the acknowledgement that this is also a human being, who, uh, you know, whose needs maybe aren't upfront, 
but uh, come up in humor or in uh, things like, uh, you know, discussing the, the taking of a vacation or one's needing to be absent or something like that. So, so I'd like to go back to this little boy in the classroom being the class clown. And what did that do for you? I'm sure there are a lot of folks uh, in our in our viewing audience who who have maybe have kids or maybe they are the class clown, and I'm sure there there must be like a similarity of you know emotions and I and and feelings and senses of self regarding class clownness, if you will. Well, that's a a complex question, but I'll I'll answer it as best I can. I've From been your in, perspective, I've sure. been in psychoanalysis, so I do have an idea of how uh, this influence that my mother had. Uh, you know, Freud said uh, dreams are one of the roads to the unconscious, and slips of the tongue were a mother. I mean, another, <laughs> but the mother evaluating humor. Uh, was very uh, instrumental in my thinking that, well, everyone values humor. And this was a way that, uh, you know, this got my mother to smile and laugh at me. Uh, this could be uh, a way to please people and make them want me to be around. And, uh, you know, back to Freud again, he, he said in his book, uh, Jokes and the Relation to the Unconscious, was that uh, humor is a... Uh, uh, either a, a way of seducing people, making them like you, or it's a way of venting hostility mm -hmm. in a sociably acceptable manner. And I think I was much more of the seductive type person with humor, at least when I was a kid. I think the hostility came later. But um, using humor at that early time was a definitely way for me to connect with people and uh, um, please, being a people pleaser. And, uh, you know, I, had, I think my role in my family became one where my mother had her own bouts with depression and I performed kind of an antidepressant function by being kind of an entertainer for her. Uh, uh, Al Pacino talks about his mother in much the same way. She used to uh, park him in movie theaters all day while she worked and then when they came home she would ask him to... Uh, you know, act out the movies he had seen. And this is where he started realizing that he was much more comfortable playing parts than being who he really was. Um, and I think there was a similar persona that I developed where I was kind of a, a funny, uh, you know, irresponsible kind of a clown. Uh, and this was supposed to originally have been a way for my mother to not be depressed and it transferred into the what I thought people would like me to be with them. That's what you thought. That's what I thought, but I, I there was an abandonment of the self that was going on in that process where my, yeah. my authentic growth wasn't really happening. I was performing a role for the need of a parent, and that was an abandonment of my own development and my own authentic uh, person becoming a becoming a whole person. Right. My, mo my mother didn't like negative emotions. Those were depressors. So I was careful to keep things like fears and uh, inadequacies and insecurities. Uh, these weren't things I felt comfortable expressing or I, I had to mask them in humor in such a way because uh, so I was cut off from a part of myself and that la led later to the beginnings of my depressions in my 20s. 
so in essence, you you had to hide who you were uh, and play uh, the uh, little man for your mom to protect her in a, in a sense, huh? Is that what, what came to protect through your humor and, and self-effacing kind of humor to keep her from feeling, what, more depressed? What a, what a, a stress on a little boy. Yes. That must have been uh, phenomenal. I can only imagine what was going on inside of you as you were going through these developmental processes, but having to push them all aside to protect your mom. Yes, there was a definite accommodation going on there. I think it's described very well in Alice Miller's uh, The Drama of the Gifted Child, or originally titled The Prisoner of Childhood, where the child has to sacrifice themselves to take care of the needs of the parent and whatever narcissistic need of the parent hasn't been met or dealt with on their own mm -hmm. becomes the child's responsibility and burden. And you're robbed of your childhood. You're actually, uh, so, you know, it's funny because humor is often seen as a sign of the inner child being free to express itself. Right. But it can also be um, a persona that uh, does not really allow the authentic uh, experience of uh, playfulness of what a child experienced. And uh, I, I have to say, I, I think in my case, the uh, depressions that I had later were partly because of this accommodation, I had abandoned the self. And I think part of my use of drugs was, uh, it fit right in, because drugs take you out of the self mm -hmm. into another place. Mm -hmm. So it felt perfectly natural for me. This, was, this would be, uh, you know, just like what it was like as a child. I, I could take a drug and I could be away from myself and abandon the self and not have to think about my own authentic experience. But you alluded to that anger. You alluded to it uh, a moment ago that there's a, what happens to the anger, that, that sense of the anger is going on. Yes. You can't be your authentic self. You're playing a role. You're, you're taking care of mom's needs, but your needs were never taken care of, I'm assuming. That's what I heard. Or was on, there on, a reciprocity? No, on many levels. Reciprocity there. No, you're absolutely right. That the the anger and resentment that come up from the accommodation ends up being repeated in patterns with all your relationships, where you start, you know. I don't know. Let's make the example of the third time you help a friend move, and then you need to move, and you ask your friend. He goes, "No, nah, I'm busy." So, you know, of course, now turning this vulnerability into a positive, I am now a therapist. So, of course, people who have been accommodators and people pleasers yeah. come into my office and all of a sudden they feel understood because they're, you know, not that I tell them my experience necessarily or take up time doing that, but mm -hmm. they get a sense that, uh, you know, they're dealing with somebody who's has been in the same pattern where they have relationships that end up being one-sided or a one-way street mm -hmm. and they end up uh, realizing that this occurred very young when they had to give up the self to mm -hmm. take care of the needs of a parent. Well I know you from what you've told me uh, previously you, you know 25 years on the circuit and in front of audiences and meeting I, I'm sure all the world-class uh, comics and comedians stage comedians uh, what did you learn from them? I mean, are there some okay. generalizations? Because I think that's critical. I personally am fascinated by this. And that's very interesting. Who are the people that go in? What is their pre-existing personality like? And, 
Uh, well, we're, we're kind of touching on some of them. Like I said, Freud said that it could be a seduction. Uh, certainly Don Rickles isn't seducing people. He's, he's more of venting hostility in a socially acceptable manner. Um, and, the, you know, Don Rickles was a, had a huge heart. So it came through that he was also a really kind human being, which he was, apparently, in, mm -hmm. in true life, in real life. But, you know, the famous joke of his that uh, he had a date and Frank Sinatra was in the same restaurant and he went over and he said, Frank, could you please just come over? She's gone to the bathroom, but when she comes back and we're, we're going to have dinner, could you come over and just say hello? And Frank goes, I don't do that. Come on, are you kidding, Don? He says, just do it for me, please. And so Frank says, oh, okay. So she comes back and they're eating. Frank Sinatra gets up and starts walking over to the table and he goes, Don, he goes, Frank, we're eating. Come on. <laughs> you know, it's a little hostile, but it's also kind of like really funny, like about, you know, anyway. But the idea of, of uh, I, I think this leads to what happened to my humorectomy, which I, I think was one thing. I was, was it, working in the camp. Was, was it painful? The humorectomy. It was very confusing uh, because humor had been such a big part of my life. And as you can tell now, I'm, I'm hysterically not funny. But... <laughs> The point is that the humorectomy was like I was working in the cookie factory and all of a sudden cookies weren't something that tasted good anymore. When you work in comedy, everything becomes material. And I realized I was going to ruin humor for myself, that I, I was going to start, th I, I even had encounters with people where they go, you can use that or, you know, have you heard this one? And it just became almost... Uh, you know, totally, it took over uh, the idea that everything was going to be about uh, what you could use as a as a comic, and I started to realize the other the other great big component of a humorectomy for me was no one ever took me seriously, and I have a mind and I have an intellect and I I and you have emotions, you have feelings. I have emotions, yeah. and I noticed that if there was something serious that came up, a subject, and there were five or six people discussing it, if I said something, it was just dismissed. It was just devalued. And I realized that nobody had ever heard me talk seriously because humor was always the way that I connected. I started to realize that no one was ever going to take me seriously for anything I really, really thought seriously about. And that really bothered me. That depressed me because I realized that my whole life, the way I connected with people was in a way a fake. It was like a performance. And it wasn't really me. So I think that uh, was one of my first, that was in my 20s, and I had a very deep depression over this persona that wasn't meeting my needs. I wanted, I wanted people to know me, and what they got to know was this performer. And I think a lot of comics are dealing with this same thing. Because, you know, humor is when they... They feel accepted and people enjoy them. And uh, but they're emotionally invisible. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. They they they're not seen. And I, and I would imagine and help me if I'm incorrect here, that the more invisible we become to ourselves and to to the public uh, to to society, the less we know about ourselves. The 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 less in touch we are to to use the common vernacular, huh? Definitely. And so there's that that sense of loss of who am I? That loss of self, if you will. And I think just having your needs satisfied. Um, 
We develop personalities. We build personalities in a way to get our needs satisfied. And if they become ineffective and we end up in patterns of behavior that no longer get our needs satisfied, we start to get upset and we, we, we feel lost and invisible. And we start to realize that we have to change. How are we going to change? I mean, uh, I'm organized around certain principles and I, I, now you want me to go and reorganize all that at what stage in my life? In my 20s, in my 30s, in my 40s? They talk about the midlife crisis right. where people reassess what are my priorities? The end of the road is getting closer. Mm -hmm. The beginning of the road is getting farther behind me. Mm -hmm. What am I really doing with my life? Am I getting up before dawn and coming home after dark and working at a job that I don't even want to be doing? And a lot of people change professions at that time or go out and buy a red convertible or have a mistress or whatever. It, maybe they're trying to hold on to the times in their youth. They say vintage clothing and vintage cars have to do with trying to recapture right. uh, that youth that people feel like is disappearing. Uh, and maybe they never really lived through it. And, and I'm, 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 exactly. I'm, I'm supposing that from what you're saying, if you've been so distant from your own emotional core for so long, how, how do you get back into this is what I feel. This is exactly what I feel. This is what I think. This is who I am. How do you find that after uh, subjugating that to everybody else's needs for so long? Okay. Well, that's, you know, the, the saying is that the person coming into therapy has two fears. The first fear is the therapist is going to treat them exactly like the person in their past who traumatized them. And their second fear is that mm. the therapist isn't going to treat them that way. Wow. So if you think about that, people want to change and they go into this relationship and we don't really know. I mean, there's hundreds of kinds of therapy, but we don't really know why two people sitting down, focusing on one of them for a period of time does change people. People transform. Now, you know, there was a joke at the seminar about a therapist walking on the beach in Hawaii, picks up a bottle, a genie pops out and says, you have one wish. He says, fantastic, I've always wanted to drive to Hawaii. Put in a freeway from California to Hawaii. And the genie says, are you kidding me? That's a big wish. I mean, we, all the pilings, how deep they would have to go, the concrete involved. I, I think we're not going to be able to do that one. And he goes, okay, I have another wish. I'm a therapist. I'd like to understand my, my patients. What is it that makes them heal? How do they tick? I want to understand what happens with them. And the genie thinks for a second and says, do you want two lanes or four lanes? <laughs> so it's kind of a mystery. Uh -huh. What is it about that's so transformative about this process that uh, successfully transforms people and allows them to um, take those organizing principles they've developed to try to get their needs met mm -hmm. and transform and reorganize those principles into a new more conscious, maybe a new self-aware set of principles that they're more conscious of how they're going to go about getting their needs met. You know, we just had the holiday of Passover, and I was at a Seder this year. I'm, I've only been to a couple in my life, but uh, at one of them, there was a rabbi who explained that the Passover holiday is a metaphor for what every individual must do to be liberated. And that is to leave the slavery of the childhood unconscious 
wander in the desert not knowing who you are. And finally, hopefully, you get to the promised land and you get to be an adult in present time with self-awareness. Uh, and I, I, I think that's wonderful. It's not about, you know, parting the sea and, and, and getting out of the plagues yeah. of Egypt. It's about what every person, the liberation process everyone goes through to become your own person, to become an authentic person in present time, uh, not obsessed with the past, not anxiety-ridden about the future, but in the present, being an adult, being conscious, and making a, a, you know, having an authentic life. As I think it was Socrates said, the unexamined life is a wasted life. Christopher Hitchens said, now go live a life that's worth examining. You know, that, that means living a life that, you know, you're happy in, that you have some kind of uh, uh, serenity, some kind of... Uh, uh, openness, a willingness to to change, to be aware. Uh, so I, I kind of forgot your question, but I think so did I. <laughs> but it does. I'm listening to you. It doesn't matter. Okay. Because what is more important is what you're saying, and yes. it's so profound. It is uh -huh. so deep right. that we have to hold on to who we are in the universe. We have to be real. When I was doing my clinical, uh, my doctoral program. Uh, one of my professors, Harold Greenwald, was a very famous author and therapist, and he was infused with humor. He'd say things like, man who sit on top of mountain have pointy object up his butt, you know, things like that. I mean, but he was trying to get us to, getting us to say that humor doesn't have to be one or two dimensional. It could be three dimensional mm -hmm. if the therapist is not a stick figure uh -huh. and can be in the, in the moment and you can have humor uh, not to mollify the heavy stuff, but to, 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 to just let things be spontaneous. Yes. Because in my book, I think my humor is very spontaneous. I think my patients really appreciate it because I'm not, I'm not a stick figure. I'm, I'm in the moment. I'm compassionately interactive, uh, interacting with them. Right. Right? Right. Yeah. So. So, so we can talk a little bit about in the clinical setting. Absolutely. And you have, I have these questions. When I have an impulse to use humor, I first stop myself, pause, and I say, will that joke facilitate a uh, response that is not about me being witty and funny and, you know, uh, so the person will think I'm great, uh, like the old way I used to use humor, uh, especially originally. But Will it serve to create rapport? Will it serve to, you know, your unconscious assesses this person's use of humor already. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, comedians always do a test. One of the, in the craft of stand-up comedy, you'll often notice a comic will ad-lib several topical jokes, you know, blah, mm -hmm. blah, blah. And from that, they can gauge how aware the audience is, whether politics is something they want to hear about or, you know, whether this or that. It's the same in a, in, a, in a clinical setting. You've evaluated the role of humor, how it's valued in this person. Uh, you might make a joke and it, they think they're not being taken seriously. Their response might be that uh, you're, uh, you want to goof off and not really talk about the important things that they feel are very serious. That's all, you know, part of the process. Mm -hmm. And you adjust accordingly. Um, 
sometimes there's a level of intimacy that's achieved with humor. Like a person feels that now that we're talking with humor, it means that we're closer. Right. Um, so there's all kinds of things. The, the obsessive person who uh, gets a little vacation from their obsessions with humor right. might respond just amazingly to the idea of humor. They, they have groups of uh, veterans who, you, who have PTSD who are obsessed with this trauma that mm -hmm. they've uh, experienced. Mm -hmm. And the, the, the group leaders ask them to bring some kind of form of humor every week uh, or every time they meet. A joke, an antidote, uh, an article, something they heard, but it has to be something that it's humor, gets them out of the obsession, um, which I'm not saying is you want to do at all times because it's not, not about escaping the material, <sighs> but it might provide something for certain people to finally get a, a little break from what they're feeling. When someone comes into therapy, maybe for the first time, I know they're infused with anxiety, fear, uh, uncertainty as to what's going to happen, whether they're going to come out of this alive or not. And for me, uh, disarming them with humor mm -hmm. tends to loosen up the situation they feel more comfortable so that I become part of the, their life situation as well as their therapist, certainly. But um, I, I'm enjoying them into my world as well, letting them know that this is not a, this does not have to be a cold, sterile environment. That's right. That this this is a place to be yourself, and if you're feeling humor, let it come out. Uh, even depressed people uh, I've seen, you know, can come up with a quip or a, a, something humorous, or they'll say something, and I might turn that into spontaneously because I don't think about these things. Mm -hmm. uh, turn it into something uh, jocular or to lighten the atmosphere a little bit because it doesn't have to be that heavy all the time. I think that uh, when you're especially identifying defenses, yes. humor can be very important. Like you're saying, the, uh, the uh, person comes in into the room, and I think inviting humor into the situation can be a way of saying, is that inner child able to come out and play? Yeah. And if your inner child can kind of go, wow, I'm so depressed, but mm. there's a part of me, this little fragile person, that loves humor and you can somehow acknowledge that you're mm -hmm. saying uh, you know um, maybe your depression isn't you know we're going to explore your depression and why you're in that state right. uh, but we're also going to acknowledge all of you which is the, par the part of you that that has uh, an interest in in being lighter right it's, I think that's critically important because I think that um, we can disarm defenses with humor. Uh, and as I said earlier, we can uh, relax, help a person relax so that they can begin to explore those dimensions and dynamics that brought them into our office in the first place. That's right. And to feel comfortable that the relationship is not going to be uh, one where they only can be in their adult state. Right they can actually be uh, in touch with parts of themselves that may be not there at that moment, but that you're saying, I'm willing to, to take all of you yeah. and uh, you know, bring it on. Fast, I've fastened my seatbelt. Let me know what's going on. Right. And, and for many people, as you said about your own life situation, 
there is an expectation of how we think we should be. And so when the therapist disarms with humor, uh, it, it gives the, the person with us the opportunity to say, wait a minute, yeah, maybe I can let some of this down now and begin to explore uh, my child, uh, the, the spontaneous, uh, you know, irrational little guy or gal inside to let that come out and let's see what it looks like. But I'm also thinking, uh there's a certain uh, it could be a, a tendency uh, I, I knew a comedian who went into therapy and uh, she had all these jokes for the therapist and the therapist wasn't laughing and kept saying and what about your mother and at the end of the session she talked to me and she said uh, boy it really bugged me so the acknowledgement of the defense of using humor to avoid talking about something deeper right. was the therapist wasn't laughing. They were, they were kept bringing them back to what they came in and first said, which was, my mother is, is destroying me. So then they went into all their jokes. So if you're in that situation with humor, you have to be able to evaluate, is it being used as a way to avoid what you need to to do in the material right. and maybe put it on the shelf for a while because because the person might experience your use of humor the way they've used humor which is like mine this persona to uh, mm -hmm. as a defense mm -hmm. so you have somebody who's maybe even in the field or uses mm -hmm. humor a lot in right. their work and they come in and you start joking they think oh there's here's another person i'm going to be able to snow snow job i'm going to i'm just going to come out with my witty material and uh, i'll go right over them and i'm never going to really talk seriously with them or right and as you said about don rickles he, in my book he weaponized humor <laughs> in, in a way to you know get his own stuff out uh -huh. but he could also mollify that and 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 in a very self-effacing way yes and I thought that was brilliant as well. And I think that self-effacement tells us a lot about who the individual is, would you say? Yes. Um, well, in, in many comics, I think, uh, uh, I, when I watch a comic, I sometimes start to think, well, what does this person really want to be taken seriously for? Yeah. And usually it'll, it'll come up. Either they'll sing a song and you'll realize they really want to be seen as uh, somebody really capable of singing or they, right. um, or they'll say something serious, touching, mm -hmm. um, or they'll be very poetic uh, and they want to be, you know, seriously taken for their words, being a wordsmith, right. uh, their creativity. I mean, creativity. Uh, creativity, in my opinion, is the access to the unconscious. You have a person who finds a medium. Let's take let's take filmmaking or acting. You know, Marlon Brando. You know, most people are supposed to have a creek that runs to the unconscious. Marlon Brando had a river. You know, he they, they, he stuffed some tissue in his cheeks and and started to do the Godfather, and he just free associated on his memories of the Italians that he grew up around in his neighborhood, who had stores and and uh, meals he had in houses that Italians, and he, he, he asked for the audition to have a platter of um, antepasto or something on the table, and you know, 
played with it, but he turned into Vito Corleone in front of these people who didn't want him to play the part. These executives didn't want Marlon Brando. He's too temperamental. They wanted uh, Danny Thomas to play the Godfather. Oh, my God. Can you imagine? Yeah, right. That was like they, for, for uh, Humphrey Bogart's role in uh, Casablanca, they wanted Ronald Reagan. Uh, but anyway, that, that river to the unconscious that a great artist is able to have, uh, and comics have it too, is they, they get to have that ability to associate freely with a great reservoir of experience and um, so creativity in general. Uh, now a therapist is really working at an art you know, the therapeutic art, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the unconscious, what you've experienced of this person in front of you and how your experience and your unconscious experience is working in an intersubjective way with that person. How, you know, they're talking about the loss of their father and you're experiencing the loss of your father. And all of a sudden you're unconscious, you're starting to, to feel all these un, uh, maybe unprocessed things you hadn't thought about before because they're talking about it in, 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 a, in a certain way. And how that inner subjectivity gets met, how your experience without you know, uh, quite expressing it becomes something they realize they're, they're understood, they're seen, they're heard, uh, can be quite transformative. So Michael, we've touched all of the, I think we've touched upon all of the uh, the points that we had previously talked about for our, our viewers, uh -huh. what we wanted them to know about humor in therapy and, and you in particular. Is there anything you want to uh, summarize or follow up with uh, in closing that uh, we hadn't touched upon that you might want to present today? Because I'm sure we're going to be doing this again. Well, I, uh, I'll tell you my favorite joke, and while I'm telling it, I'll try and think of an answer to your question. No, I think you're telling it. <laughs> Go ahead. So when I was a kid, I played the violin, and other kids, they shunned me, and I didn't care. I followed my star, and I practiced the violin a lot. And there was this gang down the street, the Dead Man's Lot gang, and they, they said, if they ever caught me walking across Dead Man's Lot with a violin case, they were going to beat the crap out of me. One cold December night, I was coming home, and it was late, and I knew my mother was worried about me, and I cut across Dead Man's Lot, and I got about halfway across, and there they were. And I said, well, if you're going to beat the crap out of me, it's going to be for what I believe in, and I took out my violin, and I started to play. And I played like I'd never played before. And when I was done, I looked up and they were gone. Many years later, I was in a cab in New York City passing the artist's entrance to the Juilliard Center and there were four men in suits standing outside. And they looked kind of familiar. I asked the driver if he knew who they were and he says that's none other than the Juilliard String Quartet. And I recognized them. It, it was the Dead Man's Lot Gang. Jeez. And I asked him to pull over, and in that moment I realized that my violin playing at that 
cold December night had inspired these guys who were, were destined for a life of crime to become the world's greatest string musicians. So I got out of the cab and I approached them and they recognized me and they beat the crap out of me. So that's a joke by, uh, written by David Mamet. <laughs> I can tell by the laughter. <laughs> I don't know whether to laugh or cry right now, but I, think I almost teared up when you, you were tearing up. up. I was tearing up. Oh my God, what a but, visual. <laughs> but I, I think there's something about the creative experience that is, uh, you know, quite difficult. And maybe it's like the journey we're talking about that every individual has to make. And to, I know a lot of comedians who would not go into therapy because they're too afraid that whatever they learned in therapy about themselves would take away their ability to be creative. And they might be right. You know, it's, uh, I don't know if you remember Alan Sherman, but he used to sing, hello, Mada, hello, yeah, Fada. Sure. And his manager convinced him to lose a lot of weight for his health or, you know, and he wasn't funny anymore. He couldn't, couldn't come up with the jokes. So, uh, you know, uh, again, I don't know if I'm answering your question. Oh, but, you uh, more than answered it, Michael. Okay. Listen, I'd like to, uh, you know, uh, in closing, I want to thank you for, for, for being here today to present this great and meaningful information. Uh, also, uh, for being here today, I want to give you a, uh, one of oh. our Good Fish production mugs wow. as, a, uh, as a thank you and reminder of this show. That's very nice of you. And I'll look forward to having okay. you on again. Uh, and I, I really appreciate you being here. Okay. Well, I really appreciate you asking me. And thank I had a so wonderful much. time. So have I, These Michael. Thank you. subject's very uh, dear to my heart. I know it is. I want to thank you all for being here today. Michael, thank you for being here. I want you to uh, take a look at our shows. I want you to follow me on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, and you can reach me at, uh, through my website at drgeraldfishkin.com or Dr. Jerry with a G at drgeraldfishkin.com. Again, I want to thank you all for watching and I look forward to seeing you on the next episode of the Dr. Jerry Fishkin Show.